we will be in Ephesians chapter 3. So turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And particularly, we will be looking at verses 13 through 15 today. Ephesians 3, 13 through 15. And we finally get to the point that Paul started making back up in verse 1. And as you get there, ours is a society that is built on comfort. Uh, because of the hard work of those who came before us, because of their sacrifice, we enjoy many luxuries. Right? We have access to foods from all over the world. Uh, we can go to international markets and get anything uh, that we truly want to experience uh, as it comes to food. Uh, we enjoy heating and air conditioning uh, as as much as we want, so we could set it, set the heat up as high as we want, uh, provided we can pay the bill at the end of the month, right? Uh, but we can enjoy these comforts. We have many comforts, uh, provided we can pay the costs. And accordingly, what we see in our culture is that we don't really always understand how to suffer or how to suffer well. Uh, we put graveyards out of the way. Uh, that was one thing growing up in Florida that I noted in, in the city is that you would never have to see a graveyard unless you really wanted to. You really had to go out of your way to find them because they were well hidden uh, by various means and measures or they were just out of the way. Uh, we place our old and infirm in nursing homes so we don't have to witness uh, the terrible suffering that comes with the, uh, the, the decline of age. As we get older, and, and things go wrong in our bodies, we don't have to bear witness to that. So we put uh, them in nursing homes. We put the elderly in nursing homes. Now I say that, that is not a judgment on that because there are times when uh, such is necessary, such is needed, uh, when medical care is just not something that we, we ourselves can provide and so we uh, entrust them to professionals. But I would also just say as an example of this, how often as a young person, and for some of you that are young persons, how often do you go visit the nursing home? How often do you intentionally go out of your way and go in there to, to minister or to bear witness or to visit uh, those who are suffering uh, in decline? And I would say that it's not a likely thing that we would do. We don't know how to suffer. And yet listen to the wisdom of the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 2 through 4. Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. And the preacher says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, if that's not countercultural advice, I don't know what is, right? How many in America would say, sorrow is better than laughter? Nobody, right? They'd say, if you think that, you, you, need, a, you need probably an antidepressant here. Let me give you a handful. And go take them, right? We don't hang around funeral parlors. We don't go out of our ways uh, to go into the homes of the grieving. 
But what does suffering look like in the life of a Christian? How should we understand suffering? So if that's the perspective of our culture, what should our perspective be today? Well, as we come to our passage, we find Paul encouraging the Ephesians uh, even in the midst of his suffering. And so today I want us to consider in our text that suffering in Christ ends in glory and is yet the occasion for prayer. So suffering in Christ ends in glory and is yet the occasion for prayer. Let me read for us our passage today out of the book of Ephesians chapter 3 verses 13 through 15. This is God's word and it reads, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Again, remember that this, uh, this verse 13 actually finishes Paul's thought that he began up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, and there he writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, dot, dot, dot. Uh, or in, in your translation, it may even have a, a long dash there to mean that there's an interruption. And Paul kind of digresses in between uh, in verses 2 through 12, and he talks about his, his ministry, what he's been called to in Christ. His ministry is one of proclaiming the mystery of Christ. And what is the mystery? Well, verse 6 tells us what this mystery is. It is that the Gentiles, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this is what Paul is preaching. And now as we switch from this digression back to his point, uh, he begins with this understanding of who, uh, who he is on behalf of the church. And so let's consider first in verse 13, intercession of suffering, an intercession of suffering. And verse 13 begins, so, we're depending on your translation, therefore, or wherefore, or for this reason, and this is where I'll pause and say, wherefore art thou, Romeo, is not, where are you, Romeo? It's why are you, Romeo? So that word wherefore, right? It's, it's a question of about a reasoning, not a question of location. Uh, but we get tripped up because we see where. We think, where does that mean? Uh, but Paul's concluding something. But what is he concluding? He brings to a close this point that he's been writing about. And the conclusion, this so or this therefore, it's not just about verse 12, but it's pointing back up to everything that's come before in this chapter. Uh, he, we're looking at verses 2 through 12. So because these things are true, so then he makes a request. Because Paul is a minister of the mystery of Christ, he asks his readers, right? He says, I ask you, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. <laughs> verse 1 tells us, again, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And this isn't just Paul saying like he does sometimes, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. 
He is literally in prison, and it's because of his testimony, of his proclamation about Christ Jesus. Paul is in prison. Uh, when we looked at verse 1, we went back and tracked in the book of Acts one of the last times he was put into prison, when he was uh, in Jerusalem worshiping in the temple, and some who were there, who knew about him, who knew his relation to the Gentiles, made an accusation against him that he had brought Gentiles past the court of the Gentiles, past the part where they could go, and into the inner part of the temple. And so there's this uh, ruckus, there's this hullabaloo, and then the Romans get involved and Paul's carted off into prison. By the way, that's not the first time Paul was in prison, right? He has been in prison before. But now Paul is in prison. And we know this prison sentence eventually leads to his death. He ends up in Rome, uh, where church history tells us he died. Right? The cause of his being in prison, though. So why is he a prisoner? It's not because he has done something wrong. It's not because he has done something immoral or evil but solely because he has identified himself with Christ, right? He has been preaching Christ, and the Jewish religious leaders cannot stand that. They hate Christ, and they hate anyone who stands with Christ. So part of Paul's concerns, though, as he writes this letter of Ephesians is here revealed, right? He considers that they might consider him being in prison, his suffering, as occasion for them to lose heart or to become faint-hearted, that they might faint at his tribulations that he is experiencing. Right? They may hear about Paul being in prison and begin to doubt who Jesus is. One commentator points out that even knowing someone in prison in the culture at this time is to invite the shame on yourself. So, right, it's not just shameful for you to be in prison, but if you're uh, associated with the one in prison, you also experience that same shame. Right? We, we use that phrase today, guilt by association. And it's this kind of idea, well, maybe Paul is considering, the concern of Paul may be here, that because they know he's in prison, that they themselves might be uh, feeling shame and guilt uh, over their belief in Christ. Right? It's kind of like when you're in school and the teacher punishes or lectures the entire class because of one poor student's behavior, right? One student's poor behavior. Because of one bad student, the whole class is lectured. And then you feel, uh, even though you've done nothing wrong in the situation, you feel on yourself the shame and guilt of the one who did something wrong. And maybe if that wasn't your experience, it was mine. So that's just a little insight there. Right. And perhaps, too, the Ephesians might wonder about their own future. Paul's in prison. Paul's, Paul is this uh, luminary of the gospel. He's this one who goes forth and proclaims it with power and persuasion, uh, even though uh, often you see he describes his preaching as, you know, not remarkable. Indeed, he wasn't trying to be remarkable in the, in the sense of being charismatic or, or flattering. But in their minds, they may look up greatly to Paul and then they wonder, is that, if that's what happened to Paul, 
that what's going to happen to me? And brothers and sisters, we have to consider the same question, right? I know in our culture, we don't really believe we will or should suffer. And I know that there are many parts uh, within Christian culture which absolutely deny. what. So listen closely. They don't just say suffering isn't uh, something we're aspiring to, but they absolutely deny that suffering is an option for a Christian. That they deny that the, this idea that we should suffer for being in Christ. Right? There are these worldly theologies within parts of Christian culture that suggest God only gives worldly blessings. And if you're experiencing suffering, you don't have faith. But what does the scriptures tell us we should expect as Christians? In this life, are we to only dine in the halls of feasting and never visit the mortuary of mourning? Well, let's look at what happens in the life of Paul. Turn to Acts 14. Again, we know Paul's in prison. This is before he is imprisoned by the Romans and uh, carted off eventually to Rome. Acts 14, verses 19 through 23. Acts 14, 19 through 23. Paul's on his missionary journey. He's preaching the gospel. He's going to different cities. And as he gets to one city, verse 19 tells us, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, into Antioch. So let's just pause there and say, where is Paul returning to? The place of his persecution, the place where he was stoned to the point of death or seeming death. Verse 22, what does he do? He's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Isn't that remarkable? Do you think that the man who was as good as dead knows what it means when he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? This wasn't a hypothetical knowledge for Paul. It was experiential. It was lived out. Or what does Jesus tell his disciples? We'll turn to John 15. John chapter 15. In verses 18 through 20. Right? We know the beginning part of John 15. That's the parable of the vine. And we might be well familiar with that but we pick up John 15 and verse 18 Christ speaking says if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love you as its own 
But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your words. So what does Jesus tell us here? Paul suffers greatly. His master suffered greatly. They murdered Jesus and they murdered Paul too. And what makes us think that we should escape such a judgment today? Time fails us to think of all the faithful witnesses to God throughout the years that have paid uh, with their earthly life. I mean, we could look, for instance, in the scriptures and see many examples of that. We could turn to Hebrews chapter 11, where we find at the end of that chapter, uh, where the author of Hebrews just kind of says, time fails to tell all the ways in which uh, there have been men and women who place themselves fully in trusting of God and suffered for it. Some were sawn in two. That's not the way that I want to go, right? That's not the way we plan to go. They suffered because they dared worship the one true and living God. And time fails to consider uh, for us today all those men and women of faith who have gone before us in suffering. Uh, we could look at church history and see the ways in which faithful men have paid with their lives. Faithful women have paid with their lives. We could look at the, the uh, time from the Reformation forward and see how there were such struggles between uh, the established church and the people who ascertained the scriptures and tried to live it out who were burnt at the stake, who their last, uh, the last smell that entered their nose was their own burning flesh. And I say that not to be gory. I say that to give you a, a, a vivid sense of what those who have gone before us have suffered. Uh, last year, we, so we could do that. We could even talk about in today, in our own day and age. Last year... Uh, the organization Open Door estimated that about 15 Christians were, were killed for their faith every day. What that means for us today is if that number holds true this year, that means by the time that our time together here is over, one Christian will have been killed, at least one Christian will have been killed because they dared name the name of Christ. And this doesn't even, that, that number, by the way, doesn't even take into account the number of men and women, uh, children, old people who suffer persecution, not leading to death, but just suffer under persecution because they dare worship Christ. And what of us here today? And what of you, beloved? We might wonder when the time will come in our country when those who believe in Christ will suffer greatly for it. Uh, by the way, we know that's an eventuality if we take anything of the book of Revelation as something that's yet to be completed. Right There will be tribulation. There will be suffering. The martyrs cry out from underneath the altar in heaven saying, 
God, when will the judgment come? And God's response is, when the full number of your brethren are brought in, who die for naming Christ. And does this all make you faint-hearted? Do you lose heart, and are you discouraged by consideration of such things? And perhaps this helps put us in the mind of the Ephesians, as Paul writes to them here in Ephesians 3. When they hear the message of the gospel, and they have believed through the words of the, their, their servant, God's servant, Paul, and they hear that he is in prison and that he is suffering, maybe that puts us a little bit closer perspective to this time. And so he writes, he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. And that's interesting there, right? Paul writes, he is suffering for them. Uh, he writes to the Corinthian church something similar in 2 Corinthians 1.6. 2 Corinthians 1.6, he writes there, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Or in the companion letter to Ephesians, the book of Colossians, uh, to the Colossian church, he writes in Colossians 1.24, Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says, I'm suffering for you. It's your benefit. He's being afflicted for their sake. Paul suffered so that the Gentiles might hear the message of salvation. They might hear the message of Christ and be saved. And he wants them to proceed in their faith with the full confidence that God is at work. God did not abandon Paul to prison. He did not abandon Paul to sufferings. God was there in the midst. And so too, he writes them. He wants them to go boldly forth, even if it means their own suffering. Right? Just before, in verse 12 of Ephesians 3, Paul writes, In whom, that is in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In Christ, we have boldness, freedom of speech, confident access to go before him and ask of him of every need. And God will be glorified in us, whether that is our faithful living until an old age and we die in peace, or whether that is by being torn and our earthly flesh destroyed at the hands of sinners. God will be glorified. And notice what Paul writes here to the Ephesians, right? He says, uh, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. It's not your shame, Ephesians. I may be in prison, but that is not for your shame. That is for your glory. They should not feel ashamed or guilty because 
the one that they learn from is in prison. Instead, they should realize that Paul's suffering is for their glory. What did the apostles do when they were threatened and beaten for preaching Christ? Well, Acts 5, verses 40 through 42 tells us. Acts 5, 40 through 42. The apostles have preached Christ. They were taken by the religious leaders. Acts 5, verse 40, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, that is the apostles, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They counted it joy that they should be dishonored because of the name of Jesus. And instead of silencing them, right, instead of that action, that that action of trying to chaining them away from preaching Christ and beating them away from Christ, right? What did it do? It emboldened them. And they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul writes to the church in Ephesus that his suffering on their behalf shouldn't make them feel ashamed, but should make them with joy uh, glory in God. And it should embolden them to continue preaching and teaching Jesus all the more. That's what Paul says happens in Philippians 1, by the way, right? When he writes to the Philippians there, he says, uh, you know, I, I'm in prison, but that's emboldened some brothers to go and preach Jesus. And again, we have to consider that in our own culture, in American Christian culture, that we have to really work to adopt this perspective. We need to understand that these light and momentary afflictions are eclipsed by an eternal weight of glory. I need to be ready to suffer for the sake of Christ, and you too, brothers and sisters, need to be ready to suffer for the sake of Christ and not lose heart. And friend, I know that, that this could seem like madness, right? That this kind of talk is like, like, you're crazy if you think this. Because to discuss something as glorious, which is shameful, which is painful, uh, that just seems uh, strange, one, and maybe stupid. You're stupid if you rejoice in sufferings. Who does that? And indeed... Such sufferings, uh, such tribulations are often pointed to as, look, see how you're wrong. This is how you're wrong. They will say that the weight of history will show how wrong we are to believe that the Bible is true and that we confess in the Bible is true that that is true, right? In our context, right, this, this means that we will be repudiated, that we will be spoken against for holding to biblical or in the language of our culture, old-fashioned, right? These are just old-fashioned ideas of gender, of sex, of marriage, 
And if you believe what this book says, what the Bible says of such topics, you'll be called out, you'll be canceled, you'll be pushed out of work, pushed out of your family, and so on. And one answer to that issue, right? So one answer, one way that we get through that is to just abrogate, that is to to remove, do away with such rules and mores and just say, you know, that was a cultural thing then and we're a different culture now and let's just do things differently. It's a popular option. You will find many churches where you can go in and be comfortable. They have accommodated to the culture and it won't look that different than what you experience and see out in the world, out in the school, out in your workplaces. You might find a welcoming space in such places. Why should we suffer for believing such old-fashioned things? But friend, you will find that such an answer rings hollow. Such a gospel is no good news at all. Because on the day of the Lord, when God shall bring all persons to account, you will be cast into the outer darkness with them, with the rest of the world. All who are ashamed of the name of Christ here in this life will find themselves rejected by Christ in the next. The scripture's clear on that. And instead, what the scriptures call us to do is to repent, to turn away from our sins, to turn away from ourselves, and to turn to God. And we are called to submit ourselves to God in His ways. God doesn't submit Himself to us and our ways. And such ways of God may indeed offend us, and we know that they'll offend the people around us. That's a given. But care little for the jeering of the crowds. Don't listen to the misses of the masses. Instead, listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Hear the good news that though you are condemned because of the evils that you have committed, there is grace and forgiveness in the person of Christ The broken body and the shed blood of Christ is sufficient for the worst of sinners. And you, friend, can be saved from certain condemnation. And though you may yet suffer in this life, though you may find true what Paul spoke to the believers in the early church, that you must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations, you will also find that there is more glory, more grace, more joy, more satisfaction in the things of God than any of the tawdry things of this world. So seek Christ, beloved. Seek the man of sorrows and learn from him. And also, just as a uh, rejoinder to this issue of, well, that was a different culture then, I would go back, I would argue. If you go back and you examine Roman culture during that time, it doesn't look all that different from our culture in our time. Understand that they believe some of the very same things that we espouse today. And so it's not a difference of culture. Paul may have suffered. He may have been imprisoned for Christ's sake, but it really was for the sake of the Ephesians, for the sake of the ministry of the mystery given unto him, and for the ultimate final glory of the saints in Ephesus. That is why Paul suffers. And this is Paul's intercession of suffering. Now let's consider next Paul's intercession of prayer. Intercession of prayer, verses 14 and 15. And verse 14 begins, for this reason, and it's the same word that actually begins uh, back up in verse 1, uh, the same word in the Greek, same phrase in the English, right? For this reason, uh, 
And as we work uh, through this chapter, we might find, as we work through the rest of this chapter, right, this prayer that Paul offers, we might find it kind of difficult to identify the logical connection between what has come before it. What I mean is when we see the elements of the prayer, we don't, they don't immediately jump out to us and say, well, Paul was just talking about his ministry. Now here he is praying for his ministry. That's what we might expect, but that's not what Paul does. Um, we might find it difficult to understand how this uh, inter- interjection that Paul gives in verses 2 through 12 relate to this prayer. But what we do know is that Paul is writing to encourage the Ephesians, and he doesn't want them to lose hope. He doesn't want them to lose heart. He doesn't want them to become discouraged or faint-hearted. And I think we see the elements of that in the prayers. We'll go through it, uh, not this week, but in uh, subsequent weeks or next week, Lord willing. Uh, Nonetheless, Paul wants his readers to understand that his work is for their benefit And so he wants to encourage them. And what Paul writes here sounds very much like prayer, but actually doesn't use the language of prayer. Uh, We see this reference to, in verse 14, look, right? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And we, in our thought process, may think, well, he's bowing his knees. That means like he's getting on his knees to pray. And that's uh, what we would presume. But culturally, in this day and age, that's not a typical posture of prayer. Uh, typically, they would stand, and that's how they would pray. Right? So typically, it's standing. Uh, typically, bowing the knees is an indication not of prayer, but of worship, uh, a, a posture of submission uh, or of uh, humiliation before someone else. Uh, so... It's more closely linked, this idea is more closely linked with worship than it is with prayer. But uh, how does this, you know, what's the point of all this? Well, it seems that in saying this this way, in writing this this way, that Paul's actually intensifying the request that he's going to describe he makes before God. Uh, So what I mean by that is we've actually already seen prayer uh, in part... In chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, for instance, Paul writes, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And he goes on and he kind of describes some of what his prayers of thanksgiving and concern for them are. So it may be that Paul here says, I bow my knees before the Father, is because he wants to intensify, he wants them to understand that this isn't just You know, he's going about his day and he makes prayer for them. This is Paul on his knees in worship before God, on his face before God, entreating God on their behalf for them. So it's an intensification. Are certain postures, this is a good question I think for us to consider, are certain postures more holy when we pray? Are certain postures better than other postures? Uh, I would say no, right? So we're not more holy if we get on our knees or if we stand up or uh, if we do a, a handstand when we pray. Also, don't try that unless you're really limber. Uh, but I'll give an example why it can matter. Do you have a problem when you're praying at night in bed 
with falling asleep before you finish your prayer. So you're laying in bed, your eyes are closed, and you're praying to God, and you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, oops, I fell asleep. Let me go ahead and say this. Lying down is not conducive to finished prayers. So does posture matter? Yes, it does matter. Now, is that wrong? No, not necessarily. Uh, we could go to David, right, and, and see in the Psalms, I meditate, meditate on you in my bed. That's a good thing to do. It's, a, it's a, uh, a blessing when our last thoughts before we go to sleep at night is of God and the first thoughts that we have in the morning is of God. That's a good thing for us. But if your only time of prayer in a day is the five minutes before you fall asleep and you don't even finish the five minutes because you fall asleep before you finish praying, don't be surprised if you find your prayer life lacking. Don't be surprised if you find communion with God suffers. Don't be surprised if you find what, what uh, is true in James 4. You do not have because you do not ask. Or don't be surprised if you find those things true. So for some of you, what I'm telling you and what we ought think about here, right? This is a bit of a digression, but what we ought think about is that you need not lie down when you pray. Maybe kneel down, but keep upright. Lest you end up like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Could you not even stay up and pray for an hour? Sometimes changing our posture can help us focus too. For instance, right, if we're just sitting in the same chair that we do work in all day or, or the same place where we are always busy thinking other things, we may find ourselves easily distracted. So maybe we do need to get on our knees before God. Maybe we need to lay out and get on our face before God. And we may find that that posture helps us orient our mind to what we're trying to do. Or maybe we need to stand up. It's, it's not a wrong thing to stand and pray. Right? What helps us? It's about what helps us be undistracted. By the way, that's the whole point of why do we bow our heads and close our eyes when you, know, you hear someone say that when we pray. Because if your eyes are open looking around, what are you doing? Not praying. Right? So we do things that help us Focus and orient our minds on what we're doing, which is communing with God. So does posture matter? Yes. Are some postures more holy in prayer? No. But I digress. Paul writes here, he says, I bow my knees, I worship, and I pray before the Father. And it's prudent to know here too. That if you have, for instance, the King James Version, you'll see here another phrase at the end of this uh, verse, which is not in the e English Standard Version, the ESV, or many newer versions, uh, and that is of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it says the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that of our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't seem to be original to the text, uh, just based on the study of the manuscripts. It likely made its way in there sometime, just because that's a common phrase, right? Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul prays and he says, I, I bow my knees, I worship, I pray, I go before the Father, verse 15, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So who is it that Paul is praying to? Who is it that Paul is submitting himself before? The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Uh, one thing we miss in our English translations is that that word for family in verse 15, as the ESV renders it, is this uh, similar, it's a cognate word of father. And so we miss that. So we might, uh, you know, if we wanted to be uh, probably a little liberal in our translation in the sense of uh, not going exactly with the meaning there, but we might say something like before the father from whom every uh, fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named or something like that. Uh, but the word there is family. But we miss that, uh, that connection. And what is it to be named? So let's start with the end of the verse first. What is it that God names every family? And here it is this idea of creation. God creates all the families. And notice the scope of his creation. What are... Or what portion are the families named, created by God? Those in heaven and those on earth. And here we must remark, right? God is the creator of all beings. He created Adam and Eve. But he also created all the hosts of the angels. He created the rulers and authorities in heaven. We've considered before that the rulers and authorities in heaven, especially as we get to the end of this letter in Ephesians 6, that the rulers and authorities in heaven are evil. They're evil angels, demons, right? They're evil spirits. They're spiritual forces of darkness that do not obey God. And this might lead us to believe that God has no control over them. But they were created by God. They were not created evil by God. But they were created by God, and they fell into evil. He names them, and that is true with the whole of the rebellious mankind. God did not just create or name his people. So why do I say that, right? He didn't just create or name his people, his, the redeemed. He didn't just name the redeemed. He created all families, all people. And why do I emphasize this? Because we need to know the one to whom Paul prays. Who is it Paul is entreating? Who is it that Paul is submitting himself before by kneeling before them in worship? There is only one who is sovereign over all things, all people, all creatures, whether in heaven or on earth. There is only one who names all the families of the spheres of reality. There is only one who creates and in whom we move and breathe and have our being. There is only one God to whom we must give account. There is only one God before whom you will give an account. And what will your account be? Suffering in Christ ends in glory and is yet the occasion for prayer, right? So this suffering doesn't mean that Paul is unconcerned with it. It doesn't mean that it's not, he's not moved by it. He doesn't, it doesn't mean that he, when considering the Ephesian church, this, his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that he's not concerned for their welfare. 
Paul writes to the Ephesians that his suffering is indeed for their benefit. It's for their glory. And it's the occasion for him to bow in worship and prayer and submission before the sovereign Father who created all things, and all creatures, all the angels, and every person of the earth. At the outset, I spoke about how culture, how our culture is one of comfort. Right? We seek it. We pay good money for it. <coughs> we try to hide ourselves from suffering. Or try to hide the suffering from ourselves. But brothers and sisters, we cannot neglect the reality that we are called to suffering. We are saved through the suffering of Christ. And it may well be that our lives will be replete with it until we attain the glory that is awaiting all the people of God. God may yet have mercy on us and spare us from the worst of it. From the kinds of pains that our brothers and sisters in Christ in distant lands, even now, this day, this moment, are experiencing because they dare to name Jesus. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who can't meet openly as we do. They would never and will never have a building on a major boulevard with a sign out front declaring forth, this is a church and this is it. we meet in the name of Jesus because to do so would be their instant death. But for ourselves, we may not experience that here, but we may. <clears throat> he may call us to walk the path of persecution for the cause of Christ. He may call us. And listen, especially young people. God may call you to a distant land to proclaim Christ and you will suffer for it. And indeed, we will find that though our kindred in the flesh may not harass us in these ways, understand this, even though we may not suffer because of that, do not think that our adversary, the evil one, won't make us suffer. He will not spare us the rod of affliction. But let us not grow faint-hearted. Let us not lose heart of faith. And instead, let us be emboldened and encouraged that we should be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. If we suffer, let us suffer for doing good. Scripture tells us. Peter tells us that. If we suffer, let us suffer for doing good. Let us be known for our sacrifice of love. Let such suffering be the cause for us to go before our Father, the Creator, our Creator, the one who breathed life into us. Let us bow before Him in worship. Let us worship Him. Let us pray to Him. And let us make known to Him our requests. Let us entreat Him for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of the faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us pray today for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us pray the words of Paul out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24, we use this sometimes as a benediction, as a blessing. 
This is a prayer to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is faithful. He is all-powerful. He is the sovereign over the kingdoms of this earth, over the rulers and the authorities in heaven. And Christ our Lord is placed over them in such authority, right? He sits at the right hand of God, Ephesians 1.22. Uh, God has, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Let's worship Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And some of you may not want to worship Jesus. You don't want to bow your knees before the Father because that would give up your control. You think that your life is much better on your terms, what you want to do and when you want to do it. But understand this, one day you will bow before Christ. Every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not going to be an option. And indeed, what you freely confess then will be all of your sins. You will admit to everything that God brings against your account. And then you will be cast forever from the good presence of God in heaven. For your sins condemn you. Your sins are heinous evil in the eyes of a holy God. And they will be repaid to you. And you will suffer wrath for all eternity. The full weight of God's wrath. A just and fitting punishment. Unless you turn and repent. Unless you ask God for the forgiveness of your sins, you will perish. Because Christ Jesus lived the holy life that you should but can't. He was and is always obedient to the Father. And on the cross, he took upon himself his people's sins. He bore God's wrath for sin, but not his own sin. He was without sin. He shed his blood uh, to pay the pardon of his people. He was buried in the grave, and on the third day he arose. He came out of that grave, and in his life, those who trust in him will experience the same thing. Now he sits at the right hand of God. He intercedes for his people. He waits for the day of his return when he will gather his people and present them in glory before our Father. And if you trust in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, you will find the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. So to turn to him. And though you may suffer much for that belief, though you may experience many tribulations, in relation to your obedience to the words of Christ, such suffering is as nothing before the weight of glory to come for those who are in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray for your help this day. God, we confess that we hate suffering 
And that is a natural conclusion for us to reach, Lord, we know. But we also know that you have called us unto it in Christ. That we will suffer by the hands of evil men around us. That we will suffer at the hands of the evil one who will want to in every way press upon us to discourage us. And Father, we confess that often we grow faint-hearted at such things. Father, we confess that we have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. And yet, Lord, how quick we are to be discouraged and want to give up in our fight against sin. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for unfaithfulness to you. Forgive us for, uh, Lord, not trusting in what you have said unto us. For not trusting that you are good even in the midst of our suffering, for not trusting that, that you are loving unto us. Father God, forbearing with your discipline as one ungrateful. God, forgive us for our failings. And Lord, we pray uh, that we would be emboldened, that we would be encouraged to say, Lord God, that our hearts may burn with the, the truth of Christ and that we would go into this community, whatever the cost and to proclaim Christ crucified. Father, help us. Father, give your spirit to help us. We pray, give us wisdom and grace. And Father, we pray for those in our midst those in our households, those in our workplaces, Father, who are dead in sin, who may be enjoying such comforts, such feasting here in this life, but they do not realize that they are preparing for themselves an eternal weight of suffering an affliction without end. Father, we pray for your mercy upon them. Lord God, that they would have eyes to see, that they would be given vision of what is to come. Father, that you would, with all of your might, show them the terrors of what is to transpire in their lives. And they might with trembling come before you and confess Christ. But Father, wake them from their stupor. Peel back, Lord, the scales from their eyes. Unstop their ears. Give their minds understanding and clarity and vision to see this and be terrified and fear you. And Lord, help us to be bold to preach unto them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That perfect love casts out fear. Help us, Lord. Help us all, lest we perish. So we pray in the name of our Lord, who was crucified, dead, buried, and is risen. In the name of Jesus, amen.